0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com.
1: Firstly, uh, hello, welcome to Channel 4. Um, I don't actually live here, I live down the road at ITN where we, where we make the programme. Uh, but th- thank you for here, and I'm, I'm really glad, uh, on behalf of the channel, that you're here. Um, we, we, uh, I'm going to introduce all the speakers in a second, but we, we had a brief discussion beforehand, because when I was, when I was handed this uh, this task, and given the question, does the Internet have a future, I thought, what, what on earth do you answer the question? Is it yes? So we've all agreed yes, so that's the end of the, of the discussion. We all, we all believe the Internet has a future. But it's quite a broad, uh, quite a broad question, um, which... If you think about it, the internet's changed quite a lot and the web's changed quite a lot over the past few years. Um, two years ago, um, I made a series of films for More Four News before the people upstairs axed it, um, which was about um, the, the dot com decade and the way that uh, society, British society, had changed in the 10 years since the dot com boom began. And right at the end of the, the, the series, we looked at ownership and control, and we looked at data, and we looked at the. And we, we predicted, I guess, with, with the help of people like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, that over the next few years, and, and the last few years we've been living in, that we would be handing over more and more control of the internet to private companies. When you think that most, uh, most, almost anyone under the age of 30 is on Facebook now, certainly if you are under the age of 21, not being on Facebook kind of means you don't exist. So there's a web, there's a, there's an internet that is controlled by a company, Facebook. You have to live their rules. We're also seeing as we sit, you know, sat, sat around in the UK over the last two, two weeks, the issue of cyber terrorism, cyber warfare, whatever you're going to call it, the work of anonymous, crashing websites, threatening, you know, threatening Whitehall apparently today that they're going to crash government websites. So there's a power going, there's a power struggle going on there that there are big corporations controlling the web. Governments seem unable to, to manage it, and then we'll, we'll probably get to towards the end, as the Minister will be coming, uh, is the issue of net neutrality and whether different, whether companies should be able to pay in order for their content to be seen faster uh, by ISPs. So there's lots of, lots of broad issues, and the, the esteemed panel here are going to tackle them all. I'm, I'm going to just introduce them really quickly. They're all in the programme, so you all know who they are. Uh, so on my right is uh, James Harkin, who's uh, Director of Flopwatching and author of CyberArea, Area. I then have Henry Harrison, uh, who is technical director of uh, Detica, who is sponsoring uh, this uh, panel discussion. Mary Ann uh Hart, which I didn't say right, even though I practised that before. Uh, he's a writing broadcaster, um, and, uh, and Jag Singh here from MessageBase. I'm going to. Oh, uh, you're sponsoring it, so you get to go first, <laughs> Henry. Um, what, what, what's uh, in, 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 the, in the view of Detica and yourself? Does inter- the internet have a and, future, and, and what are the key issues that we need sure. to be thinking so, about?
2: So, one of the great things about going in the, um, towards the end of the day is that I've, I've, I've sat and through it. in, well, I've still everybody else there's but a lot of people have made some of the points that I wanted to make. And I'm indebted to the last panel, um, where both Nico and Lucy uh, spoke passionately about how. Um, We've gone we in the dark, but I um, we keep this going. Um, about how uh, dependent we are on these digital technologies that we've been talking about and how pervasive they are in everything that we do. And so Nico said, we, sorry, Lucy said how pervasive they were, and Nico said, we'll no, we've really reached nirvana when, when we won't know that we're online. Um, and so we've seen that. We see that. The, the, the flip side of it is, is that when something becomes that deeply embedded in society, we start to see... Um, the bad side of society as well the dark side, the difficult side of society we start to see issues of criminality we start to see issues of conflict we start to see issues of um, jockeying for control and so on and um, one of the effects of doing the job that I do is that you tend to um, start becoming a bit of a bad news hound um, and um, I, when I was originally we knew we were, uh, when you were sponsoring this, we, we, I thought about how to how to introduce this topic, and I was wondering how to get where we were going to go in the last week. That's broadly been done for me. We've already, during the course of today, been talking about um, about Anonymous and the work and the, the um, attacks that they've so been mounting. They're actually hacking into uh, Ford's lighting equipment a- right as now. we speak. Exactly, um, they did. Um, and um, and this this is kind of this is good because it, for us we're raising awareness. Uh, in that it um, is very distracting, with what's going on and all um, it, it raises some of the issues. I think we had a discussion before about whether this was cyber terrorism. Um, to me, I think I mean we can talk about words. Who knows that we're inventing words? Cyber terrorism, a new word, so we can call it whatever we want. But to me, it's more like cyber vandalism. I mean, this is pretty low-level stuff, frankly. This is not very sophisticated, and and you know this. But we have seen some really interesting stuff over the course of the last. Uh, year or so. We have seen um, stories at the beginning of the year about Google going public about the fact that uh, that they were penetrated and obviously WikiLeaks cables um, uh, recently throwing some light on who the U.S. believed was responsible for that. we have seen um, revelations about the Stuxnet virus. I don't know if anybody spotted that. So, that was a, a very sophisticated piece of, of, of um, computer uh, malware, a bad piece of code um, that looked pretty much like it was developed probably by some nation state and almost certainly designed to um, try and break centrifuges that are used in the refinement of uranium. Um, not confirmed, but it looks pretty likely that that's what the case. And then on the sort of criminal side, we've seen um, arrest of 100 people across the US, the UK, and Ukraine involved in the Zeus um, online banking uh, 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 criminal gang. Um, and that was estimated, I saw a report that was estimated, I don't know if anyone's confirmed this, estimated was uh, to have, uh, have stolen about $169 million uh, out of banking accounts. Um, and then, of course, there's all the stuff that you don't see, um, which is actually the majority of the bad things that are going on. And that's stuff where we're seeing um, fairly significant numbers of infiltrations into the companies that provide uh, the wealth, the, uh, the economic generation capability of our country, um, and, um, you know... Th- this is now. This is. There was a reference earlier to, to the fact that the bottom line is 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 is, is key to making this environment work. So, so that's kind of what's going on, and I'm then eternally indebted um, to, um, to uh, Justine Roberts from Mumsnet, and those who are here this morning, this, there was a brief, the, the topic briefly turned, to, turn, the conversation briefly turned to this topic, and she, she said that you know, even Mumsnet has been subject to denial of service attacks, which is quite interesting to wonder who's really got that bigger beef with Mumsnet. Um,
1: my, my website, Pink <laughs> News, is the same, which is incredible. Well.
2: So, but, but, but what, what was interesting was that, you know, her, and I, I you know, quoted perhaps out of, out of context, but her throwaway comment was government needs to get involved in a big way. And I'd compare that with what um, there was a, the, one of the anonymous, or some guy who was claiming to speak for anonymous during the course of the week um, called Coldblood, who eloquently said um, that what it was, we want the internet remains as it is, free and open to everyone. Um, but, but perhaps sort of more, more eloquent was something that was written in, in 1996. So I dug this out. This was, this was one of the founders of the Electronic Freedom Frontier who said, um, made a declaration of independence of cyberspace and said, Governments of the industrial world, you have no sovereignty where we gather. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies that you seek to impose on us. Cyberspace doesn't lie within your borders. So... I think it's, it's, it's quite an interesting moment now because there's always been some tension between government and the internet, typically around freedom of speech, it's been around the need to intercept communications of criminals and terrorists and so on. But what we're starting to see now is, I think, people realizing that the environment itself is under threat from these sorts of activities and recognizing that, you know, in Justine's words, governments need to get involved. And so they are. So in the United Kingdom, our government. Um, has uh, recently, you know, recently published the National Security Strategy, and it identified cybersecurity, security of the online spaces, as one of the top four most important risks, face, sorry, highest priority, to use the exact words, highest priority risks facing the United Kingdom. And that was alongside, i just wrote down what the other ones were, that's alongside international terrorism, international military crises, and major accidents or natural hazards, and ahead of um, chemical, biological, or radiological attacks on the UK, conventional military attacks on the UK, NATO, or the EU, and various other risks that we might historically have considered to be more significant. And in the US, we've seen the setup of um, US Cyber Command with um, a new four-star general in charge of it, and similar activities in China and Russia and so on, although there's less public information about what's going on there. So, so governments are getting involved, and citizens do want them to get involved because there is, in fact, a problem. But we're start, You know, this this does set up a huge conflict because this environment that we've been talking about, all of today and everything we talk about depends on. Depends on wasn't set up in such a way as to enable this. It just isn't built that way. It's not built to respect national boundaries. Um, and it's not really built to be an environment where you can, can, can worry about, uh, about security matters. And so we, we ask, does the internet have a future? What I really play back to you is, what sort of a future do we want? Because actually, this is now starting to touch the real world, and the democratic process comes into action, and, and you as opinion formers and as voters, to have an opinion about what sort of a role you want the government to play, and what sort of an internet that's going to build, because it's probably going to be quite different from what it is today.
1: Thank you. And I was typing into, into some notes here, and I realised that, aside from being a media stereotyper with my iPad, that I, maybe I'm typing into the future of the internet, which is that well, I'm, everything I access on here, apps-related, is controlled by a company, controlled by Apple, um, and the things they don't want to be on there don't appear things they want to do um, and they'll obviously make 30% or 33% of the revenue, so maybe that's the future of the internet. Um, Jack, I thought it would come to you next.
3: Cool. Um, kick off. Right, so I'll start with my typical Vicky Pollard kick off the panel uh, answer, so it's yeah, but no, but yeah, but mostly yeah. Um, there are always going to be rational actors who you know, are going to prevent, I'm going to focus more on the state control of the web or the internet. Um, as we have it today. And um, we've got to realize that connectivity is the key between all of us. Um, you know, and I'm not just saying this because, well, I have a stake in the future of the internet, but um, most, of the, you know, most of the activities I, I, I conduct in my life, you know, with the exception of the ones that include bodily functions, take place on the web. Um, you know, years of online gaming have given me excellent hand-eye control. Um, but I can't wait for my toothbrush to have its own IP address. Seriously, I mean, it's almost happening already. It'll sync up with my Outlook calendar and remind me, oh, you're running three minutes late because you've been brushing your teeth a little bit too long. Um, So that's the kind of future we've got. And what role does the government have in that? And that's the kind of thing that um, uh, a lot of people tend to forget. the Internet is pretty much state-controlled. We tend to forget that, you know, the AT&T's got a great deal with the National Security Agency in the U.S., where most of the data that was flowing, you know, back and forth not just from you know, connections in the UK to connections in the Middle East, but you know, rooted via um, Los Angeles or, or the East Coast, have been intercepted by the National Security Agency. We don't know anything about the way they, those guys run, and you know, they are a bunch of cowboys. Let's face it. We, we, you can easily look at the example of BlackBerry and how it caved in to the demands of Saudi Arabia to sort of host its servers, you know, not in Waterloo, Canada, but in Dharan. So the converse side of that brings us to the argument that you can't access Flickr in Dubai. You can't access WikiLeaks in some parts of the US. You can't access Wikipedia in Iran, Pakistan. What kind of future for the web exactly is that? Um, Well, I'll outline my vision. And it basically involves conflicts and disputes. Being resolved through competition, not through negotiation, not through uh, you know coalition, not through new politics—none of these buzzwords. Just pure, unadulterated, good old-fashioned Uncle Sam brutal competition. And it's the same type of competition that um, you know. Le- Sorry, I was skipping ahead. I'll come back to that a bit. Um, so, okay, governments definitely want to control networks, and they want to network users. Through their own sort of legal sanctions and mechanisms, what are we going to do about it? Well, we've learned to cope. We're, that's what we do as humans. We always learn to cope. If you can't buy a specific book in Amazon and from you know from Amazon in Germany, well, guess what? You can actually buy it from the .com version, or you can get it on eBay. So we will always figure a way out around this. One of the interesting side notes is that WikiLeaks actually got a lot of its data, not not the latest one, which came from. Uh, uh, private uh, in the U.S. Army, but a lot of it actually came from Chinese hackers tunneling through secure connections that were meant to bypass all these government filters. And that's how WikiLeaks got a shed load of data. And it's the same reason why we've got OpenLeaks coming up. Has anyone heard of OpenLeaks? Yeah, I'm sure I see. For those of you who are sort of uh, unaware, it's the competitor to WikiLeaks. They're actually branding themselves as WikiLeaks, but a bit more responsible. So the way they're going to do this is they're going to partner up with newspapers, um, and you know have a sort of conversation. It's competition in its unadulterated form. Of course, if you're a whistleblower, you want the most bang for your you know bang. So you're going to go to WikiLeaks. You don't want none of the, you, know, you don't want any of this openly <laughs> adulterated stuff. Um, which brings me to the question of: Will we actually share more, given that you know awareness of? state control is increasing. Well, yes, and I think we'll actually share even more because the prevalence of these ways around state-controlled mechanisms means that we don't have any concerns about that kind of stuff. Uh, The second part of that is that our online world doesn't actually mirror our offline reality. Um, By most estimates, we're talking about 8 to 15%. Most of the things we do, most of the things we think, aren't automatically tweeted out. I mean, God save me! If, if you know, all my thoughts were automatically tweeted out. There is a filter, and there always has been, and there always will be. It's called our, our you know, our hands or our brains. Um, similarly, sorry. Don't worry about it. That's fine. Um, similarly, on the other side, we've got sites like Blippy. Has anyone heard of Blippy in the U.S.? Yes. Okay, ben obviously has. It's a a social network that basically lets you share your credit card transactions as you pay for items. So can you you just imagine having full access to every single item I buy? Um, And and, and some guy in the U.S. has come up with the idea of let's create a social network around it. Um, Now... Why it's apparently a
1: conversation starter?
3: Apparently it's a conversation starter. Yes, you know all that porn. You're lying. Um, and then when you consider all the pri- all the privacy fiascos that have, that have taken place in Facebook in the last, you know, well since its the inception, um, they've all been sort of secondary action related. They're not actually related to people putting stuff online. They're just more concerned about sharing that stuff online. And given the right um, circumstances, you know, Facebook putting up privacy controls, everyone's okay with that. So we will actually share more and more. Um, now, the moderate version of Blippy leads us to sites like Groupon, you know, that, that huge, massive site that turned out $6 billion from Google. Um, we're still sharing all that data. We're sharing it. Every time you email one of your friends saying, oh, I like that deal, you should get it too, um, you're giving up a lot of control. So now... Um, Right. Given that we're going to learn how to control and how we're going to learn how to cope with all these mechanisms, um, the future basically involves closed and proprietary networks, technology, Facebook apps, iPhone apps. Um, you know, and, and it's going to require a fundamental rethink in the way we talk about power. It's the same sort of power that lets, you know... Um, Random black guy become a state senator, go from becoming a state senator to president of the United States in five years. It's the same sort of power that lets um, a great big website turn, you know, with a billion dollars in revenue, lose out to some dweeb from Harvard who sets up another site, and that site now is now worth, you know, I think the last recollection it's about it's about it's worth almost as much as Ireland's GNP. Um, So, coming back to the main point. We're going to have a future internet that's going to look exactly like the way it is, but it's going to act very much differently in the back end. And that's where people you know, like Detica come in, where, that's a shameless plug, um, where they're going to have to figure out all those sort of mechanisms in the background, how we share data securely, secretly. And basically, it means that we're going to have a web that's going to have to adapt to the way we think, it's going to have to adapt to the values we cherish. And it's going to have to adapt to the way we actually respond to challenges like WikiLeaks or any other political, technological, economic sort of motivation we've got. So, in summation, the the future of the Internet is a Pandora's box.
1: I mean, that Pandora's box, when you you were talking about things like Facebook and the amount of information that's on there, it's kind of a project that I've been working on. We've been looking at how much data you get from... Clicking that Facebook Connect button. You click that Facebook Connect button and you let whatever website it is that's got it get access to all of the status updates you've given for I don't know how long, forever. Uh, it gives you access to all of your friends, all of your interrelations, all of the articles you've, you've liked on the internet. It's a huge amount of data there. And, and I guess what we do with that information is, is quite important and, and who's looking after it. And also, I guess, the validity of the information. So I'm passing over to Ann to, to, to talk about... Uh, information and and I guess the future of the
0: internet. Thanks very much. Well uh, I guess I hope the internet has a future or you guys will have wasted a whole day here and you're probably in the wrong jobs. Uh, Now there's a phrase my teenage daughters use, uh, TMI they say, too much information and it's usually when I've said something really just a little bit too personal and embarrassing about myself. Um, But it's it's also a phrase I think that we can use when we're talking about the internet. There's Too much information that is sensitive for governments. And we've seen that. You've talked about it already this afternoon WikiLeaks, cyber terrorism. There's too much information that's personally sensitive. Uh, I'm always telling my teenage daughters just to censor what they put on Facebook. You know, one of them's applying to university, and her prospective tutors could easily, you know, look up (laughs) embarrassing photographs of her smoking a spliff or something. And I say, look, just don't put anything on there that you don't want other people you to just, see. You, you just
1: published that to the web on that podcast, <laughs> so unfortunately. theoretical, of course.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I've opted out of, um, of, the, of the new NHS computer spine because I don't want anyone... How, I don't know how many million people work for the NHS, but I don't want all of them to have access to my medical records, or indeed a hacker who decides to expose people's um, personal medical details. Um, but there's also too much information of varying degrees of usefulness on the internet... And the problem that people have is how do they discern the information that's useful, that is authoritative, that is well-sourced, and that which isn't? And how does the provider of information that is useful and authoritative and well-sourced get enough revenue from publishing it on the internet to be able to provide it in the first place? Now, I speak, obviously, as a political journalist. I spent 25 years, roughly, learning this trade, Getting to know the politicians, going out to lunch with them, talking to them when I write my column. When I write my column, it is I hope authoritative and well sourced. Now there are plenty of bloggers out there who will write what they think is going on in government, who haven't talked to—they're <laughs> censoring
4: me—who
0: um, <laughs> haven't talked to the ministers involved, and it may as well be saloon bar gossip. But as far as the um, use of the internet is concerned, both of them come for free. How are they to tell which is good and which is even better and which is positively bad? Um, I've worked for a newspaper on and off for um, about 30 years now. People are often asking me, how do I get into newspapers? What advice can you give me as a prospective journalist? I say don't, because I really don't understand how newspapers are going to be able to finance themselves in 10, 20 years' time when they're facing competition from as I call it, the saloon bar bloggers, uh, whose opinions cost them nothing to produce. Uh, My daughter wants to be a journalist. I'm telling her not to do it as well. Um, Because newspapers haven't worked out how to make this pay. They have to pay their journalists. They have to have big offices. Um, They have bureaus all over the world. It's a very expensive operation, finding authoritative, well-sourced information. News came out today that Ian Dale, who's actually one of the best political bloggers, and he is well-informed, he is authoritative, he's decided to give up his blog because it doesn't pay him any money at all. What he's going to carry on doing is appearing on TV and radio, which is the only income he gets as a result of his blogging. Because he writes a good blog, he gets invited to comment on TV and radio, and that's his only source of income. He doesn't see how he can make blogging pay. Well, of course, The Times, where I used to work, has put up a paywall and roughly 95% of its readers have deserted it. Uh, If I was still a Times columnist, I would be pretty pissed off about the fact that no one would be able to find me on Google, and that no one could read me, unless they paid a clunking great subscription to get over the paywall and down to my column on the other side. Um, Rupert Murdoch has designed this system whereby you have to you have to part with money in the form of pounds. And my view is that once you've got to pay something it's a pound or more, you balk at it. When it's very small numbers of pence, you don't really mind. I think he's got the system wrong. And I think that if you were to have really tiny micropayments for every, piece, every page you clicked on in the Times, suppose it cost you 2p for every article, you wouldn't really think twice about it. You wouldn't have to log in. Your, your cookies would immediately recognize you. And it would just be automatic at the end of the month on your credit card bill, it would say £8.64 to News International. And you'd think, fair enough. But every time you've got to pay your pound or your £5 or your £50, you think, to hell with it. I can read it in The Guardian instead or in the BBC instead. Now, he presumably wants to do it because he values the newspaper brand, the Times brand. But lots of people these days are choosing to read articles because they've clicked through from somewhere else. I read most of my political comments by clicking through from Twitter. Someone recommends an article on Twitter, and I just click it. If it's in the Times, I don't read it, except, of course, I still read an old-fashioned newspaper, unlike almost everybody else. Um, But most people won't click through from Twitter just to read one article, which they're going to have to pay for. They would if it were 2P, but they won't if they've got to jump this great paywall, I don't think. Um, But I suppose what Murdoch is worried about is that if he doesn't charge entry to the whole paper, to the whole of The Times, then people are just going to choose particular writers. They might decide they want to read Anatole Kolecki or they want to read Danny Finkelstein, and they also want to read Marianne Seacott and Polly Toynbee, but they don't want to read The Times. And so if he, were, if he allowed micropayments, perhaps in the end, that would enable people like me to think, well, I don't actually need a publisher because people aren't, re- aren't reading me via The Independents. Um, they just want to go straight to me. Well, of course, I haven't found a way to make the internet pay like that either. So I'm glad still to be paid by the independent. But I can see perhaps in several decades' time, that's more how the internet is going to work for established writers at least. Um, But the problem now is that unless you are a specialist purveyor of information, if you're the FT or the Wall Street Journal, you can afford to charge a subscription for your your very well-sourced and authoritative information. Because A... It's specialist information that people can't get elsewhere. And B, the sort of people who read the FT in the Wall Street Journal can simply put it on their expenses. Now, that's not the, going to be the case for general newspapers like The Times or The Independent. And while we're up against competition like the BBC, which already gets its revenue from license-fee payers, or The Guardian, which for some bizarre reason has decided that ideologically, comment ought to be free. It's even called its website that. Um, I don't see how newspapers are going to survive on the internet or going to find a way of financing themselves on the internet. So the question for me is, does authoritative, well-sourced information on the internet have a future? Well, not at this rate. And uh, in 10 or 20 years' time, there may still be too much information on the internet, but it's going to be pretty ill-informed.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, it, it reminds me that, that, that final point about information, and, and, it, and, and as it's the Independent, I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, I went to the Wikipedia page, and it's something that really irritates me of my old school. And for some reason, uh, the kids always put that J- JK from Jamiroquai went to my school, which is the Jewish Free School. Now, A, he's not actually Jewish, and B, he went to a Church of England public school. But because and I've continually changed that and said you know with the Wikipedia thing, and then and then said you know this isn't true. There's no there's no there's no there's no authoritative source on that. However, um, it it goes back up the next day because someone else pushes it. But then the Independent wrote an article about JFS, my old school, which was actually nothing to do with Jimi It's about a, a, a case that went to the Supreme Court. But it said. In, its, in, in the copy, that J.K. from Jamiroquai attended the school. And now Wikipedia links to that as the source. And so it's a ridiculous circle that you now can't break because actually the source is incorrect uh, in itself. Anyway, uh, so, um, but it's just interesting when you, when you see that of uh, data. I should also say that the Times' app and the Sunday Times' app on the I- iPad is fantastic yeah, I and maybe that. is worth £2 a week. Um, I'm not paying for it. Um, (laughs) James, over to you.
4: Um, Well, my feeling, um, and I think this dovetails quite nicely with what some of the other panellists have been saying, is that, well, from where I'm sitting, there's a new kind of realism, I think, about what the internet can achieve. I mean, thus far, we've, well, the last decade, we've heard from lots of, I suppose, for want of a better phrase, you'd call internet gurus who've turned up and they've told us that the Internet systematically breaks the monopoly of information that authorities have. And the ability to send information back and forth between ourselves, burrowing under these authorities, is going to change everything. And I think the John Perry Barlow quote that you came up with, Henry, is a great example of that kind of utopian Internet idea. Now, it turns out that was right insofar as it went. But having broken that monopoly over the information that we send back and forth um, what the Internet gurus forgot to tell us is that um, the authorities have discovered rather ingenious ways of turning up and manipulating the flow of information and earwigging on the other end. And I think, in broad-brush terms, what I see is a, is a kind of shift of power or control from authorities who want to control information to authorities who behave a little bit like Facebook or, or Craigslist where they simply invite everybody onto their turf. They become like a kind of online ecosystem, let everyone do what they like, and try and um, get some purchase or make some sense of it at the other end. The second point I'd make is that, insofar as there is a new realism about the Internet, I think there really is um, about what the Internet can do. Nowadays, that's probably a good thing. Um, You know, we've had lots of Internet evangelists come along and tell us that you know this new medium is going to overturn or revolutionise the traditional economic laws of profit and loss, that it's going to liberate people from authoritarian dictatorships in the Middle East, that it's going to reinvent the mainstream media. None of that happened. Um, it was very good for consultancy fees for internet careers for a while, and um, good for them, it didn't happen. Um, the problems we have now in our much more realistic, sometimes pessimistic world, is that um, we're seeing... The birth of a new kind of hype, which is a, which is a very pessimistic kind of hype, which is usually perpetrated by cybersecurity companies who come along and tell us that there's this awful thing called cyber war and it's going to demolish Western civilization and ruin our infrastructure. Now I'm very skeptical of all of that. And I'd refer you here to Seymour Hersh's article in, in The New Yorker last month where he systematically unpicks many of the claims for Cyber warfare and points out quite rightly that many of the people in America who are, who are, who are pushing um, cyber warfare um, are former politicians who have big stakes in cyber security companies. So I'd be very skeptical of many of the claims of um, cyber warfare. And if, if the minister's here, I'd, 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 my suggestion would be that he be very skeptical of um, cyber security companies turning up in six months with um, fantastic tales of terrible cyber warfare in a couple of Matt Damon films and trying to extract large sums of money from the British government along these lines. Um, It's obvious that governmental information needs to be secure, but many of these scenarios that we're seeing are simply fantastical, and I hope that we're healthily sceptical of them. So given all that, I suppose, um, I mean, in what sense can this new realism about the Internet tell us um, anything about how we use it and what we, what we can get out the other end. Now, there are lots of things that you might say about which way the Internet is headed as we move towards, from central authorities towards online ecosystems. And um, I only want to talk about one of them because I don't have very much time. But one thing um, you might say is that potentially I think this, all of this information that exists about us in public and sometimes um, in privately owned data, um, can tell us really interesting things about ourselves. And I I think there's there's a a real mine or trove of information here which could reinvent um, the business of social research, polling, and and after that, um, advertising. And I think um, it will do so by being appropriately sceptical again of many of the claims that people make with the internet. I mean, from what you hear from some internet evangelists, everything is becoming public that we see. And it's simply this incredibly brave, new, transparent world. And we can simply pick off all this information that's public and that's hunky-dory. Now, it's very obvious to anyone who uses Facebook that the information you make public on Facebook, people aren't really as stupid as they look. You make information public on Facebook because you want to, because it expresses something about your identity, because you want to get a message across. It's not enough simply to turn up and see this as a new public sphere which can be um, simply crunched um, for information about ourselves. The future, I think, lies not so much with the people who own these information troves, but from people people like David McCandless, perhaps, who can turn up and make interesting and creative new uses for all of this information. And what that depends on um, is having an idea, or a concept, or or an interpretive model um, which can narrow down all of this information and boil it into something that's really interesting. Um, if I can come back to the world of cyber security, I mean, the point that C. Seymour Hersh makes, and I think it's a great one, is that while mu- much of the claims that have been made for cyber warfare are simply fantastical, what is going to be important is cyber espionage, um, cyber spying. But for cyber spying, you don't so much need a huge information trove, you need to know what to look for. Not much point simply throwing around information. You need to overlay data upon existing data, have theories, have concepts, know exactly what you're looking for, and clear off. Um, That, I think, is going to be much more of a growth industry than than all the stuff about cyber warfare. For companies, for institutions, I think, what it means is that it's going to change radically the way that they relate to their audiences. And this is something which I think is quite inspiring Um, which is the idea that traditionally big institutions and small institutions have tried to identify their audience in various kind of proxy ways by identifying them according to their demographic attributes, by stereotyping them um, according to their gender, according to their race, according to where they live, and then producing stuff that that stereotypical person might like. Those were imaginary proxies based on stereotypical ideas about who we were, and all that, I promise you, in the next decade is over, and it's collapsing. And much of the culture that we've seen, which exists in the middle, that kind of rather dull culture that no one really loves, but which everyone likes a little bit, we see on TV, much of it, I think, and I hope, is going to disappear, and it's going to be replaced by stuff that some people like a lot. And organizations are going to develop much closer relationships, not with the general public or with proxy audiences, but with real audiences who can help cultivate the product and grow it. And that's where I think innovation is going to come from. I'm just just back from San Francisco where I've been talking to many of the people who are doing new kinds of social research Um, in this area for, for an agency I'm setting up and also a book I'm writing. And... You know, there's a whole new kind of job specification now for someone called a sentiment analyst. I'm not quite sure if anyone knows what a sentiment analyst um, is, but if anyone wants a job in that line, I'm sure there'll be, there'll, be, there'll be plenty going. And sentiment analysts sit there in front of a computer and they mine all of this information. They look at all this information coming up from Twitter and, and Facebook and they try and make sense of it in interesting, perhaps primitive Ways. So, for example, I had a long conversation with a sentiment analyst called Margaret um, about the meaning of the word motherfucker. It turns out that motherfucker um, is usually a negative word. And, Marga- and Margaret's automated system has pigeonholed that word as a, as a very negative word. And so every time that word comes up in relationship to a brand or an institution or a political party, the file is negative. But it turns out, if the word motherfucker is preceded by badass, as in badass motherfucker, anyone who watches The Wire will know this, then it's a term of praise or endearment. So therefore, you need a human overseer overseeing all of this automated data and trying to make sense of that. So i just throw that out there as an example of, <laughs> of what sentiment analysts do. Now, this all probably sounds scary and not particularly inspiring if it's being done by... Multinationals, And it's, uh, that kind of sentiment analysis, I think, is rather primitive and may not even work. What I can tell you is that huge online ecosystems, or those um, who are working for them, companies like Cisco and Facebook, are investing huge sums of money to try and make sense of all the information out there about us on the internet. And the reason why companies are prepared to pay for this information is often because the stuff that they're selling us isn't very inspiring. You buy Coca-Cola, you probably don't think it's wonderful, therefore you don't give your data to Coca-Cola, therefore Coca-Cola has to go to Google to get some data about you. But for smaller, more interesting institutions which, which are innovating and which are producing new stuff, new ways of relate, relating to your audience um, by getting their data and using it in interesting ways and developing a real constructive relationship with them, I think is going to be important and it's going to be useful. And it may well lead to a situation in, where we get, in which the middle, that rather flabby middle uh, of mainstream culture, um, collapses. And the stuff that emerges at the margins is more interesting and it grows organically. And then the real question becomes for moguls whether you want to invest in dying industries and try and kind of extract as much value from them as you can before they die, or you invest in new things. I suggest that people begin to invest in new things at the margins which are growing organically. And can I say just one last thing? Um, sorry, I won't bother. <laughs> that's, that's I'm being, being, being warned We need to kind of uh, move on a little bit. Uh, okay, can I just, the last thing I wanted to say was really all this stuff about online ecosystems, it really depends less on who owns the information trove, um, or who can pass it around. Information is just a recipe for anarchy and mutual embarrassment. What you really need are people who know and have a sense and who can ask the right questions, and that's the way forward.
1: Great. Thank you to
4: everyone, uh, panel.
1: I'm going to throw this open now for a bit of a discussion. Um, have you got any points or questions for everyone or for one particular person? Uh, let's get them, and then I'm going to, towards the end, we'll kind of wrap up and have a bit more of a debate between seeing these guys, if there is something to debate. It's really, actually, four very different views um, and things that are important. Uh,
5: yeah. Obviously, say your name and, and where you're from and all, and all that great stuff. Uh, Nico McDonald, Spy and Big Potatoes. Um, I think there's, uh, there's probably four issues in terms of the future of the Internet that we might not have covered in detail. One is the thesis by, propounded by Jonathan Zittron uh, the end of in his book, The End of the Internet, that the uh, degree to which we are accepting controlled environments like Apple's products and so on, uh, where we're trading security uh, and ease of use to some extent for the open internet and the adaptability and the innovative platform that was the PC, will lead to uh, essentially us being partly trapped in those walled gardens again and also reduce the amount of uh, innovation taking place because they're not platforms to, on which you can innovate. I mean, that, that's one threat to the future of the internet propounded. Another is the whole net neutrality debate, which we've alluded to already about whether there's... We're going to
1: try and direct that to when, when the minister arrives. Right, answer, okay, good. Well, well, we know that debate.
5: That. Um, the third thing is a kind of very practical thing is, you know, have we got enough energy to power the internet? And there was a presentation rather good by Nar Murphy earlier on about the internet of things, and Chris Yap, who's here today, said, well, if you uh, applied his model to a city like Barcelona, it would raise the temperature of the city by one degree and obviously it would break the power system. Uh, we're already going to have blackouts in 20 years according to many people, sometimes less if we don't build more power stations. So can we actually power the internet in future and all the data centers? And the last thing is, are the innovation models, which we were talking about on the panel that I was on, uh, that created or helped create the internet sufficiently dynamic to create the next internet or you know, the next phase of the internet?
1: Who, who, wants to respond to that?
3: I'll address your third point first, because it's about the power problem. Uh, Yes, it is a problem. But going back to what I said, we always learn to cope. You know, Um, that great example from Freakonomics, where a hundred years ago, or a couple hundred years ago, we thought New York City would be under twenty feet of horse manure. Turns out, not so much a problem today. Um, Google's already coming out with you know the new, the Google isn't just a search engine. They're actually innovating in terms of you know. Uh, automotive transport. They're also innovating in terms of uh, the kinds of power consumption used in uh, uh, data centers. So we will innovate. That we'll definitely fix that problem. Um, probably easier than
5: fixing the lights. There.
3: Probably. Um, you know, if you raise the temperature in Barcelona by one degree Celsius, you're probably going to have you know, a couple of million deaths in uh, you know, some of the islands in, in, off the Pacific coast. So there's loads of issues there. More people are creating more apps. Um, to sit on the, you know, the Facebook or, or the iDevice or the, you know, the iOS platform than they are for Mac, Windows, and Linux combined. Is that a problem? Is, well,
1: a, the problem, here presumably, is that in order to get your app there, um, you need the approval of Apple. And I think about... Sort of, <laughs> it, there are so many apps that have been denied their place there. Uh, of
3: course, but that's why Android's so popular today. That's why you know, Windows is trying to compete. And in fact, the Facebook programming language is based on mostly open source Uh, languages like PHP, so it's not a big problem. Um, I do take your point about the Citrin's uh, theory, though, but
4: thank you very much. (laughs)